There's a rhythm to life in Spain that's different from the rest of the world. You can hear it in their music. The real, real flamenco players, they actually snap their fingers like this, Rick. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, it's an insider's guide to the musical traditions of Spain. For astronaut Chris Hadfield, there's nothing so beautiful as staring out the window of the International Space Station. You just sit there, peaceful, floating, watching some big swath of the world roll past. It's an amazingly, distractingly beautiful place to be. We'll learn the intimate details of everyday life 200 miles up into space. And for a down-to-earth way to explore the USA, you can try a canine-themed road trip with your dog. So we have the highest rate of dog ownership in the world, and we've really become this country where dogs are invited into more and more places. From a dog's eye view to a close-up from outer space, come along as we travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. It has to be the ultimate way to decide where to take a vacation. Chris Hadfield simply had to look out the window of the International Space Station while orbiting the Earth and take notes on interesting-looking places to visit when he returned to terra firma. Coming up, Commander Hatfield takes another orbit to travel with Rick Steves. He shares the perspective you gain from space travel. We'll also ask him how you take care of things in space that you'd take for granted back here on Earth, like using the bathroom in zero gravity. Back on Earth, Benoit Denizé-Lewis realized that being cooped up in a city apartment all day was making his dog miserable. So he plotted a dog-friendly road trip across the USA. He'll tell us what did and didn't work for his dog, Casey, and what he learned about how people in different parts of the country care for their pets. First, let's get a taste of the musical culture of Spain. Mention Spanish music, and I'll bet you're picturing serious-faced flamenco dancers and a fiery guitarist with people snapping castanets all around the room. Madrid-based tour guide Federico Garcia Barroso joins us right now for an overview of the music traditions that we all can enjoy across Spain. Federico, welcome. Hola, thanks. <laughs> now, when you think about Spain, I mentioned you got the castanets and the fancy guitar and the flamenco and the stomping on the stage. Is that an accurate view or is that just a tired touristic cliché? Well, actually, Spain, Spain is a kaleidoscope of different people, different ethnicities, different musical styles. You know, Flamenco is obviously the most popular folk music, I would say, in Spain all over the world. We export it all over the world, and it's just an explosion of fantasy, an explosion of happiness and, and rhythm. But we have many more things. We have, I mean, flamenco is basically coming from southern Spain, from Sevilla and Cadiz. But there are also other examples. If we go to northern Spain, we find how in a, that beautiful Renaissance town called Salamanca, we find those tuna Men is not really so tuna band is a, is a mm -hmm. sort of a, a band of street troubadours that go back for centuries. Exactly, with those black capes you see, and they are still you know singing beautiful songs to all those pretty girls in Salamanca. It's actually a kind of tradition among several students in those universities and colleges, and they are mostly mostly happy songs. 
So that's the fun of going to Spain is you do yeah. get this the regional differences. The castanets, is, is that a sort of an Andalusian thing? No, you know what? That is actually one of those things that... The castanets are mostly coming from northern Spain in Aragon. Is that right? Because I, I consider it with the south and Sevilla and so well, on. Well, that's what we think, but it's not actually in that way. Actually, the real, real flamenco players, they actually snap their fingers like this, Rick. And they don't really use those castanets, you see? You don't need castanets when no. you can snap like that. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you just did. I mean, that was really good. Well. So, you know, when I was a kid, we would just make farts with our armpits. And uh, <laughs> that is so much nicer. <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> do you do that in Spain? Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I can join your band. <laughs> okay, but, so I like that. You got a better, much more better tone with it's, your snapping. It's all about feet tapping and the sounds are coming from your fingers and from your feet. Some people even have the right shoes on a flamenco oh, to make that. Absolutely. And a wooden stage. That's, that's the word tablao. Flamenco means a wooden stage. Oh, that's you know? right. Because I always see a tablao, like they're advertising, they're bragging, there's going to be a great flamenco show tonight mm-hmm. and a tablao. So that is the wooden stage. Exactly. Because then you hear that riveting. Exactly. Now the guitar. Mm-hmm. Spanish guitar. The Spanish guitar, we love guitars in Spain and, and also in Portugal. It's the heart and soul of Spanish music, it feels like. It is. Flamenco guitar or a classical guitar, you know. The guitar is evoking somehow, you know, the spirit of Spain. Absolutely. So you combine all of that, and then you've got the wonderful regional differences, and you have plenty, plenty Many. to experience. Many. What would your tip be when we go to Spain to get a special a special inside appreciation of the music culture and heritage. All right. I'm going to tell you something. I want to share with you something that not many people know, not even the Spaniards know. We have a dance, a folk dance in Madrid called, in Spanish language, Chotis, which is a kind of uh, paso doble. The thing is that a couple, a man or woman, dance together, and not many people know that that Spanish Chotis is coming from Scotland. Scotland, it was a Scottish dance, you know. Nobody knew how to say that in English in those 1800s, and they heard something like Scottish, and finally they transcribed that into Spanish as Chotis, which is actually a Scottish melody (laughs) that was adopted by Madrid. And now our folk dance in our city in Madrid has those Scottish roots, and not many people know that. What is the word again? Chotis. Chotis. C-H-O-T-I-S. And you can go into uh, mm-hmm. Granada, and you can hear the gypsy music in the caves of Sacramonte. Exactly. You can go to Salamanca and hear the strolling troubadours of the college, mm-hmm. the tuna band. There's so many opportunities. We're exploring the music traditions of Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find a link to Federico's website in the details for this week's show at ricksteves.com. You can also reach us by email anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Alicia emails us from Miami in Florida, and Federico Alicia writes, I love classic guitar, and I've never been to a flamenco show. What should I look for for an authentic experience? We have Saturday night in Barcelona, Friday in Madrid, and the rest of the time in San Sebastian. Mm -hmm. So if she wants to have one good flamenco experience, what would you recommend? Many people ask me about this. Tell me the right place to go. In reality, those artists, they just move. They take a high-speed train, and they go from one city to another. 
So actually, you can really find great shows in Madrid, absolutely, mm-hmm. and also in Barcelona, and mostly in southern Spain. It's not so easy in northern Spain. It's not actually easy mm-hmm. to find that in San Sebastian. I would say that in the core of Madrid, we find at least three places. There are many, but there are three places where they really offer you good shows, professional dancers and singers. What are the names of those places? Uh, one of my favorite ones is the Carboneras. Carboneras mm-hmm. is actually, I mean, young people, young dancers, young singers in a very cozy atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, some of those relatives go there and they spontaneously join those artists on the stage. That is a wonderful place. Carboneras. Yeah, in my opinion. And yeah. is there one place in Madrid where the, the most famous stars would be, where you're most likely to pay oh. a little more money and get the top show? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. Carboneras and another one called Corral de la Morería. That is also another, oh, okay. another good one. So now Alicia is going to be in Barcelona, in Madrid, and in San Sebastian. Of course, San Sebastian is Basque country, and if mm-hmm. you saw flamenco there, it's almost like seeing flamenco in Paris or something mm-hmm. like that, I suppose. Barcelona, it's another different region, and they've mm-hmm. got their own culture, Catalonian. My experience for flamenco in Barcelona is mm-hmm. is just tourist shows on, on the square. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. But, but really, the, the heart of flamenco is Andalusia, mm-hmm. Andalusia. And, and Sevilla. Sevilla. And then Sorry. the big city of Madrid just has the, the mm. audience and the financial wherewithal to hire the big big names to come exactly. up there. So I would say, if you're going to Sevilla, save your flamenco evening until you get to Sevilla. Mm. If you're not going to Sevilla, Madrid would be a great place to go. Absolutely. When you think of flamenco, what are the, what are the roots of flamenco? Where does that come from? Because it's so distinct that mm. we find that in Spain. We think, we really think that hundreds and hundreds of years ago, those Indians from India, those nomads, came to Europe uh, with all those seductive melodies. Actually, sometimes when I see an Indian dancer, the way they move their hands, you know, it reminds me, you know, in a very similar way, those female flamenco dancers that we now have that in is Spain. Because you, you think in India, you've got this exotic hand motions, mm-hmm. and are, you're talking gypsy culture? Exactly. So I guess gypsies originally came from India. Absolutely. Hit the road, nomadic culture. With one very important thing to consider, they crossed all over northern Africa and they adapted those rhythms, those percussion instruments and they then finally they came into Spain and Portugal and this is what we find now, the Spanish flamenco. It's just a fusion of those gypsy Indian melodies with those African rhythms. Now when you get into a good, spontaneous, wonderful, intense uh, flamenco experience, is that all planned out? Do they have a, a list of songs they're going to do, or is it just sort of a jam session and they're going with their spirit? Absolutely. The, the, the second choice that you just gave us right now is, is actually what is happening in, in every flamenco show. They obviously have a kind of a skeleton, all right? But I consider flamenco a little bit similar to jazz music in the way that those performers, they always have the right moment to improvise and to add something new. And the only thing they have to do is to look at each other, you know? There's a lot of eye contact, a lot of body language, you see? And that is that is the magic that they call duende. And just to witness that, you can get caught up in it. It's You can see pretty simple, tacky tourist shows, and, and they're they're fun. <laughs> but if you can find the real thing... And it's not unusual to find the real thing, even mm-hmm. for a tourist. Mm-hmm. It really is a but highlight once, of your trip. Once you find it, you really feel it. No matter, you don't need to be a Spaniard. You really You'll feel know. the magic. You'll know. Absolutely. You'll know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Spanish music with Federico Garcia Barroso. Federico, one time I was in Madrid and I went to Zarzuela. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know this existed, but I went to a Zarzuela theater. Mm-hmm. Explain to us, Zarzuela. Zarzuela is something, something magic, something quite popular in Spain and, and Latin America. We have to say that Zarzuela, for all our friends, for all our American and Canadian friends, Zarzuela are just those Spanish musicals from those late 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s 
the Spanish operetta will say, you see. The operetta, like uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Exactly, that yeah. is, you read my mind, Gilbert and Sullivan. I mean, Perfect. we have those local composers making that, merry-making music, happy Over the music. top, melodramatic, very entertaining. <laughs> very entertaining. That was that was a priority. You see, those Spaniards in those days, they nobody spoke German. Nobody enjoyed those never-ending operas by Wagner. You know, they just wanted to see something much more accessible, easy listening, happy melodies, funny stories. The length of the show was shorter. People went to the theater for a very inexpensive price, you see. People in those days had no TV and no radio. You know, they just had to go to the theater to be happy. <laughs> Can we still see Zarzuela today in Madrid? Oh, absolutely. So we just look at the the local um, entertainment listing and yes. find Zarzuela. Absolutely. Federico, I've known you for many years and you just seem to have music bursting out of you. Mm-hmm. Can you share with us uh, a little bit of why music is important to you and, and how you might just spontaneously mm-hmm. share it with your friends at a party? Uh, well, I, <laughs> what can I say? You know, since I was a child, I had a very good ear for languages and music. And I really, now, now I really re- honestly consider that children should grow up with, with music because they become better human beings, you know. It's, it's just the way to feed your spirit and your and your soul. And, and I had that gift and since I was a child. I had that skill, you know, to understand music and to first to enjoy music and then after that to sing. Federico, Spain has such a long history and love affair with music. What's the scene today in Spain? Who are the great artists in Spain? What's happening? Placido Domingo. Placido Domingo is just absolutely unique. A man who is 75 years old and he's still performing, he's still acting, learning new roles, avant-garde operas in different and unusual languages, and he's still there. Absolutely amazing. And we have also another woman called Teresa Berganza, who has been classified as the best Carmen ever. Okay, and she's still performing, you know. When you hear her, do you feel like, oh, this is exceptional? Wow. I'm, I'm especially proud to say that both of them are from my city, from Madrid City, both of them. Placido and Teresa, they have been actually singing together in several occasions. So the Spanish love of music is alive and well. Yep. (laughs) Federico Garcia Barrosa, thank you so much for sharing with us a little better understanding of the musical culture of Spain. Muchas gracias. A canine American road trip and living weightless at the space station. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Chris Hadfield knows he's one of the chosen few. His missions on the International Space Station gave him an angel's eye view of planet Earth. He's assembled some of the most interesting views of Earth that he saw from the space station in his photo book. It's called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. He's back with us today on Travel with Rick Steves with more insider information on the challenges and advantages of living in zero gravity while you spend a few months circling the Earth. Commander Hadfield, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Rick. Commander Hadfield, you are pretty famous because you happen to have made a video on YouTube that's gone viral. It's you doing a cover of David Bowie's famous Space Oddity. Tell us about that. It's one of the most beautiful five minutes I've spent on YouTube. <laughs> It was really just happenstance. I've always been a musician, and I was playing music on the station, but there was this great sequence of requests on the Internet for me to do a cover of Space Oddity, which I'd never covered Bowie in my life. But my son convinced me to do it and just took a couple takes, and then I really liked how it sounded. It's as if Bowie's art had somehow recognized and soaked up a feeling of place. And once we had the vocal track, then put instrumentals underneath... 
and then made a video, and the result was worldwide. It's where my son put together the video, my son Evan, and, and posted it. It's been seen almost 25 million times. 25 million times. Well, I hope people can go there and check it out because it's a beautiful, beautiful rendition of the song. And as you said, hearing an astronaut sing it, with, by the way, a beautiful voice you have, and Thank you. Uh, and seeing the beautiful production uh, standards and all of this. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> One, one man studio up it there. Was, there. It was <laughs> gorgeously filmed. The light is nice in the International Space Station. Yeah, it worked out well. And Bowie himself, I mean, he gave us approval, of course, to do yeah. it, but uh, he said it was the most poignant version of the song ever done, which is for a, for oh, a little one-guy recording yeah. studio up there. I'm pretty happy. Talk about poignant. That was beautiful. And it, it just made me wonder what it's like to be um, in that weightless situation with all that beautiful views out your window and so on, whether down at Earth or out at space. And, of course, you've spent a lot of energy collecting photographs and collecting them in this book, and it just shares. You seem to have a passion for sharing the wonder of being up in space, looking down on Earth. Tell us why you made this book. It's magic up there, Rick. I mean, literally. I don't. I don't mean that uh, figuratively. You can fly. You can float. You can tumble. You can move around just on your fingertips. In fact, at nighttime, when we're trying to be quiet, going to the bathroom, we would move on our fingertips so you didn't didn't disturb any noises when you were floating through the station. Sort of like tiptoeing, but on your fingertips. So you creep around and, by fingertip. Yeah, I it's so it. delicate and effortless. And you would pull yourself over to the window. And it's strange because the window's down in the floor like a glass-bottom boat. But yeah. when you pull yourself down into the window, the world suddenly, because it's head down, the world feels like intuitively that it's above you. So you huh. go from this upside-down position to suddenly feel like you're looking up at the world. And because we're going so fast, even though it may be nighttime on the station, we go around the world every 92 minutes, 16 times a day. So 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets yeah. a day. So it might be noon in New York City, e even though you're sound asleep on the station, or noon in Cairo or noon in Sydney. And so you just sit there peaceful, floating, watching some big swath of the world roll past and then uh, use the bathroom and go back to bed again. It's an amazingly distractingly beautiful place to be. So we're going to be talking for 8 or 10 or 12 minutes here, and uh, you can fly how far from California to how far in 10 minutes? Uh, yeah, 9 minutes right across the states from San Francisco to New York in 9 wow. minutes. And it's not just hypothetical, but you see the whole country. Imagine if you said yeah. to yourself, okay, in the next 9 minutes, I'm going to see the whole country, and I'm going to get to the Grand Canyon and all the way up to the Black Hills and down to the Gulf, and I'll see the Panhandle, and I'll see the whole swath up, and then huh. D.C., and then here comes Boston with the harbor there, looks so much like a big jagged mouth, and then poop, you're over the ocean, and it just goes by so fast. Now, you're going around uh, 16 times a, a day or something like that. Do you have a 24-hour clock that you live by, so you're going to sleep from midnight to 8 a.m., or, or how does that work? Yeah, we decided we needed some sort of combined clock. We all sleep at the same time just because as a crew, it's more sustainable that way. But you're free to have something other than a 24-hour clock. Is that what you choose to have as 24-hour bio clock? We do because it helps with all the people supporting us on Earth. We have mm. mission control in Houston and in Huntsville, Alabama and in Moscow mm -hmm. and in Japan and in Germany. And so we chose a compromise. We chose London, England as our time. Oh, so you're Greenwich base. Mean Time. So up we're there. on just the same as the Queen. We're on when the Queen goes uh, to bed, we go to bed. <laughs> Very nice. So now you mentioned you had to be real quiet when you went to the bathroom. Let me just talk about some personal things when you're up there, if you don't mind. When you are eating, 
do you sit down and enjoy eating, or do you have to eat everything out of squeeze tubes? Well, there's, you can't sit and there's no down. But, but yes, you hover around. And you normally have your toes hooked into something so you don't yeah. bang into things. And your food, you can't use a plate because the food would drift off the plate. So typically you eat whatever is in one package completely. So if, let's say you're having steak and mashed potatoes and cream peas. They would each be in an individual package, and you'd rehydrate them and heat them up, and then you'd carefully snip open your mashed potatoes, mm -hmm. and then you would eat all of your mashed potatoes and then carefully roll up that because uh, trash space is at a premium, mm -hmm. and then you'd get out your steak, and you would eat your steak, and you might wrap mm -hmm. it in a tortilla. We, we use tortillas in place of bread because they don't have crumbs, and they mm -hmm. last a long time, and so you'd wrap up your steak, maybe squirt a little mustard on it and have your steak, and then... Have that all done, and then you'd eat your cream peas, and then maybe you'd hunt oh, okay. for... So that's the downside. You have to eat everything at once. Can you have leftovers? Uh, there's no refrigeration, really. You open and, up something, and you've got to finish it or toss it. And as a crew rule, we kind of set you eat all of your food because right. it's so yeah. complex getting food up there. You want to get all of the value out of it. So just eat all of everything. And it's not restaurant food, but it's good food and quality food so and kept us healthy. Now, as yeah, scientists, right. you can pretty much say I need so many grams of this and so many grams of that, and I don't need to be hungry because scientifically I'm not hungry. Did you have some sort of a enforced standard of exactly what you would consume? Sometimes very much because our human bodies are one of the things we're studying, and they want to know how your digestion changes. Mm -hmm. And our skeleton, we get pretty bad osteoporosis and mm -hmm. muscle wasting. And if, so if you don't know exactly what you're eating, then it's very hard to figure out what's causing what. Okay. And so if there'd be weeks at a time where we had to only eat exactly what we've been given by our dietitians on the ground. Or you had to record right down to the yeah. ounce every single thing that wow. you ate just because we're large lab rats up You're there. You're lab rats. I was know. just going to say you're human guinea yeah. pigs. Yeah. Now, do, uh, you, yeah, do you have a BO up there, body odor? You know, strangely enough, I never once smelled another person up there. You would think with six people living in a big aluminum right. cylinder that it would... But part of it is that you, you give yourself a sponge bath every day. So wait a sec. So you you could get naked just easily up there as you can down here, and you just uh, have water <laughs> yeah. and soap on a rag, and you sponge yourself down? Sponge yourself down, just use a tiny bit of soap. Mm -hmm. But your clothes never really touch you up there. That's maybe a big difference. Your mm -hmm. clothes just float near you. You, mm -hmm. you never sit, say, on, on your pants or stand on your socks or your, your shirt doesn't hang on your body. So it doesn't pick up the oils and odor from yeah. your body nearly as much. So your clothes, and, and it's a very clean place. There's not, there's not a lot of dirt around. So your clothes last a long time up there. Well, that just drives us to the next question then. Can you elegantly go to the bathroom, urinate and defecate? <laughs> takes practice, but yes, and in place of gravity, we have airflow, which pulls everything down into the toilet, and you, ah. you pee into one tube, it has a big yellow funnel on the end, okay. and it has air pulled into it, and that runs through a big sewage system and mm. with uh, centrifuges and filters and purifiers, and then at the other end of that is is the tap that you drink out of. Oh, so you've got to make sure the <laughs> and, air is going in the right direction when you decide. <laughs> yeah. You, but if the air is going in the right direction, it's going to be pretty um, a clean process. Yeah, and I mean, uh, all water had to be purified. Any right. water you've drunk in your whole life went through some sort of purification process, even if it was just evaporation. And, and then the solid waste, it goes into a thing that looks like a big milk can, and each time it's contained in a little cloth bag, and when that's full, you seal it up completely, and then you put a new milk can in, and it works just fine. It's, it's You have to pay a little more attention than you do on Earth, but, mm -hmm. but after a while, it just becomes, this is how we go to the bathroom in space. After five months of that, when you get home, is there any aspect of living in the space station that you miss? The kind of 
joyous effortlessness of weightlessness yeah. to be able mm. to not have to support your own weight. I didn't have to hold my head up for five months. You know, <laughs> you get so used to that, and, that is so and it's so tranquil. Yeah. And, and you get and home, a, and now you got to get out of bed. You got to drag your body oh, out of bed. Gravity is the ultimate oppressor. If you think it, it literally grinds us into the ground yeah. all the time, and you sort of put up with it. But once yeah. you've been weightless for half a year. Um, you resent gravity a little more. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Commander Chris Hadfield, and he's written a book called You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes, the greatest hits of 45,000 photos he took from the International Space Station. Chris, when we think about your beautiful photos, just we've got just a couple minutes yet to talk. I, I just want to ask you your take on, on these thoughts. Can you see international borders from space? How do you know when a country stops and another one starts? Almost none of them can be seen from space, only where there's a different irrigation pattern, like uh, in the desert between Israel and Egypt, or where there's a big uh, barrier to human migration, like uh, in Mexico and the United States in Tijuana. You can see the line because so many more people live on one side of the line than the other. Right. But all, along Canada and the U.S., there's a national park on one side draws a line. But most places, the borders are, are just somebody else's imagination. What man-made features stand out in your mind when you look down from 250 miles up? Anything that has really sharp contrast of shape and color. So some of the big highways cutting across uh, natural curves or Tokyo Harbor is such a huge man-made object or mm-hmm. um, or Manhattan. It, you see the uh, all the, the wharves and the docks sticking out into the Hudson. You can see things on that scale. Some of the big airports, you cannot see the Great Wall of China. Ah, it's too narrow and it's dirt colored yeah. and it follows the contours. But you can see the big, angular, colorful, man-made things. I love the photographs of the uh, grand bridges crossing the Bosporus Strait where lacing, literally lacing Asia to Europe at Istanbul at night. And that's a beautiful shot in your book. Yeah, uh, what yeah, about it's, the f- it's beautiful from space. Can you see fault lines, the San Andreas Fault and so on from space? So clearly, especially if you wait for the right time of day so the shadows are a little bit lengthened. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's the sun's purely above, it tends to flatten out all of the contours. Okay. But if you allow the shadows, if you, if you choose your orbit so the sun's helping you out as, as a lighting assistant, you can pick out changes like that. And one of the, the most visible faults in the world is the San Andreas because it cuts up across so yeah. much of California. And just south of San Francisco, you can see it clear as a bell. You can see where the land is. Someone has, has torqued it and caused it to shift. It's absolutely indelible and unmistakable. Some of the colors that show through in your photographs are just almost garish. They're almost not natural, but they are natural. Salt dried in the desert and algae in yeah. certain inland seas. What struck you about colors when you look back at the world? The world is far more colorful than you think. And often when you take a picture with a camera, you see a lot of the blue because of the atmosphere. But your eye learns to get rid of that. You know, your eye disregards the blue and it picks out the colors of things. Mm-hmm. And then you see through to the, the huge variety. Bacteria, strangely enough, makes such a big difference where they're in a pond or, or in some section of a sea at the south end of the San Francisco Harbor where there's the salt ponds there, the, the bacteria that live at the different levels of salinity, they create these huge different colors. Same thing in the Crimea or um, in some of the shallow seas around the world. Suddenly something's pink or something's green um, mm. down in, in mm-hmm. South America as well on the edge of the Salars up there. And and they take on these strange uh, Shrek-like shapes in your mind or mm. something just because of this weird, it's like a kid was given a box of, of crayons and said, color within the lines. And this weird incongruous thing is sitting there in the middle of a brown desert. I noticed in your book, there's no photos of the Arctic or the Antarctic. Why is that? 
we don't fly quite that far north. Our okay. orbit is tipped 52 degrees from the equator. So the furthest north we get is actually about 52 degrees and 52 degrees south. So we can see if a thousand miles north from there, but you right. can't, we don't go over the Arctic or the okay. Antarctic. You just sort of see it on the horizon. I only spotted Antarctica once on, on a clear day. I could see the shelf of the ice coming mm. up towards me, but in the far hazy distance. You sound like a tour guide. But it's beyond that. It's, uh -huh. it's somewhere between an interpreter and an aficionado and, and maybe a tour guide also yeah. and some sort of zealot. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. but, but the world is so generous in constantly giving a visual difference to what you're going over because mm -hmm. the angle with the sun changes subtly. Or I was on the space station for almost half a year. So the seasons of the earth swap from one hemisphere to the other. We went from winter to summer. So the weather patterns were wildly different and the vegetation changed. And you come around once in the world, it's almost like it's pulling its slip up and mm. showing you a little more every time of yeah. something that you just didn't expect to it's see. a little geo-strip tease. And, and, sh and sharing that with someone was really the purpose of the book. After two missions on the International Space Station, including commanding one with a record-setting number of scientific experiments, Chris Hadfield wrote the bestseller, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. His latest work is a book of close-up photos from space that give us a big picture of life on Earth. His website is chrishadfield.ca. That's spelled H-A-D-F-I-E-L-D. What did you see on Earth that made you want to visit it when you got back down on the ground? Oh, all kinds of places, but in New Zealand, of course, it's got the North Island and the South Island. On the north end of the South Island, there's a big river valley that flows up and the volcanoes across the strait there. But that valley, you can see the wine growing, or at least I thought I could see the wine growing, or the grapes mm. growing from space. That This broad, gentle-looking valley, and you can just see the slopes of it and... I could just picture myself and my wife sitting there with mm. our feet up and that, that sort of beautiful, <laughs> dry climate that makes the good wines of the world. Oh, that's and, beautiful. And, uh, I would like to go there. Coming home. Darling, I've just been around the world 2,597 <laughs> times. Let's go to New Zealand. All right. <laughs> you know, I'm so impressed by how travel, just in general, gives us a better understanding of our home because you can look at it from a distance. When you go to space, home is planet Earth. And you go from a distance and... I wonder, from your perspective, if we could just close, Commander Hadfield, with what you learn about our home by seeing it from a distance. Uh, it's so hard to understand something if you've only seen it one way. You can stare at something and stare at something, but if you can walk around the side of it or behind it, then when you come back around and see it in your typical way, you know more about it. You see it more completely. Your eyes don't just get a reflection of light off the part you're looking at, but they actually see it for what it truly is. And after the, the experiences that I've had and the other astronauts have had, you get that feeling of the whole world. It's not just some theoretical, two-dimensional, poorly understood thing, but it's a huge, thriving, interconnected place. And not just where you live, but it's all connected uh, in your mind. And, and mm. it gives you a, a peace and an appreciation and a patience with the whole thing that, that I'm really happy to have for the rest of my life. I would imagine when you come home, you consider yourself a citizen of this entire planet. Yeah, and a slightly more thoughtful steward of the whole planet. I'm not any sort of panicky person, but we all breathe out of the same bubble. You know, it occurred to me, it's like we're all buddy breathing off the same scuba tank, all 7 billion of us. And sometimes we forget that. But when you go around it 16 times a day, you, you just see inevitably how we're all in this together.
Beautiful thoughts. Commander Chris Hadfield, thank you so much for your work as an astronaut and for sharing it with us through your new book, You Are Here, Around the World in 92 Minutes. Best wishes in your future travels. And I hope you get to New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's go together, Rex. Sounds like fun. When he's not traveling, Chris Hadfield bases himself at his family farm near Sarnia in Ontario, where the local airport's named in his honor. He's also something of a favorite son in his native land. Here's an excerpt of a duet Chris sang with his brother, Dave Hadfield, on his song about the joys of everyday life in Canada. Oh, I've slept out in a forest, scared I heard a bear. I've climbed a rocky mountain just because it's there. Across the great St. Lawrence, said merci beaucoup. Pardon me, I'm sorry. Excuse me. And to you. That's a bit of the Canada song from Chris and Dave Hadfield. It may have taken only nine minutes in the space station for Commander Hadfield's view to go from coast to coast. But if you want to really get to know a place, meeting interesting people and feeling the breeze out your window, there's nothing like a leisurely road trip with your dog. Up next, it's a road trip through dog-crazy America, complete with a moody Labrador retriever in the passenger seat. It's Travel with Rick Steves. To journalist Benoit Denizé-Lewis, it was starting to seem like he and his dog Casey weren't really connecting like man and dog should. After checking in with a pet psychologist, Benoit planned out an extended cross-country RV trip with Casey, with plenty of dog-friendly stops along the way. Over four months and 13,000 miles, they got to meet some pretty interesting fellow dog lovers all across America. And it showed them both just how much humans and canines really depend on each other. Benoit, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your road trip with man's best friend. Where'd you go and why? Two reasons, essentially. The first was pretty personal. I was depressed. A relationship had just ended. I'd actually had also had a sort of falling out with a good friend of mine. I was really not in a good space and um, had a little time off. And compounded with that, I had this, I've always had this nagging question about whether I was the best human for my dog and whether we were sort of perfectly matched and I sometimes had this fear that he didn't like me very much. All of this sort of combined to say, you know what, we're going to bond. We're going to drive around this country. Um, So that was the first reason. The second reason was that I wanted to tell the story of dogs in contemporary American life. I mean, there are many dog books, um, but I wanted to do this a little bit differently and really look at sort of the different kinds of human-dog relationships that exist in this country and sort of examine what we can learn about ourselves through our relationship to our dog. So I set out on this um, four-month journey and did a lot of planning because there were all different types of dog people that I wanted to meet along the way, whether it be pet psychics, dog trainers, people who rely on their dogs to protect their farm, people who use their dog uh, for sport, people who go hunting with their dogs, you know, cops who have dogs. I really wanted to look at sort of the full gamut of human-dog relationships. So I set out on this four-month journey. I I rented an RV and said, Casey, whether you like it or not, we're going. 
and just you, know, you and we Casey, no, no other human being. It was just um, a just man and his me dog. and Casey. This was really an attempt to bond with my dog and to feel better about my relationship. So, how um, did you pass dog. the time together on a long drive? Did you care about what music he got to listen to? <laughs> so we started this drive, and to add to my sort of guilt about my relationship with Casey. He hated the RV at first. I mean, he despised the RV. That's right. You you wrote, Uh, everything was fine until you started the engine. Yeah. I mean, it was um, the poor guy. He's fine in normal cars, but there was something about this big thing that was also our living room and our our house that was moving that he did not take well to. And it, it took several weeks. And What did he not like about the RV? I don't know. I think it was the the loud sound of it. But he would go, he would sit uncomfortably next to me in this little spot, or he'd go and sit by the door. He was incredibly uncomfortable, and I tried everything. I tried lamb shanks because he loves food. I, I tried, um, there's this calm-down music for dogs that you can buy, sort of this tranquility stuff. First of all, let's talk about some practicalities. How do you prepare for a long road trip with a dog? What are some of the challenges in just traveling with a dog? It's interesting because we've become this country in America, so we have the highest rate of dog ownership in the world, and we've really become this country where dogs are invited into more and more places where they didn't always used to be invited. So it's actually quite easy to travel with your dog, and a lot of people do. I was shocked at the amount of folks in RVs who had one dog, two dogs, three dogs, and so that was a very common thing. So For me, it was a little bit, I had this dual purpose, right? I was doing this road trip, and then I also had all of these amazing dogs and people to meet throughout the country. You had a schedule of of experiences. I had a schedule. Yeah, I had a schedule um, because there were certain people I wanted to meet in certain places, but I also allowed myself enough time that if I met a quirky, interesting person, you know, I, I picked up a hitchhiker who was with his dog who was driving to meet this woman that he talked to on the internet. And you you can't do a road trip without meeting these fascinating, interesting people. You know, I met truckers who had their dogs with them, and, and we would talk. And okay, but that sounds very selfish as a human being wanting to meet interesting people. What about Casey? Did Casey get to meet interesting dogs? Is there like, you know, people yeah. to people is all about good travel. What about dog to dog? Well, yeah. I mean, Casey was very fortunate. He loved this trip. So he hated the RV, but every time we got out of the RV... He was either met with a dog-obsessed human being who just wanted to pet him and play with him or a really interesting dog. So we met all kinds of dogs on this trip, whether they were stray dogs, the dogs of wealthy suburbanites, the dogs of homeless people. You met, a, yeah, you met a, a homeless teenager with a dog in Kent near Seattle. Yeah. I was really interested in this, in this aspect. One thing that I noticed when I drove around the country, and I wasn't totally prepared for this, was the number of stray and homeless dogs that I saw. So the dogs of homeless people are a little bit different. And no, I'll that's talk interesting. About them in a second. Stray and homeless dogs and stray and homeless people. Well, right, exactly. And and the dogs of homeless people are actually some of the most well-socialized and happiest dogs around. We have this misconception often. We see a dog with a homeless person. We say, oh, that poor dog. Well, in fact, as long as you know the dog is getting enough food, which they usually are, they're always outside and they're always with their owner. I mean, this is like you know two of the things that dogs That's need the true. most. And I think we often get this huh. misconception in this country where we spoil our dogs and we say, oh, we, they need the most expensive doggy bed and we need to send them to doggy spas. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Benoit Denizé Lewis. His book is uh, Travels with Casey. 
my journey through our dog-crazy country. Again, a little bit of the practicalities if people are thinking of a long road trip with their dog. Are dogs allowed in parks, and are some states more dog-friendly than others? You wrote about an interesting uh, challenge at Yellowstone National Park. Yeah, so national parks, uh, I don't know about all of them, but uh, I think most of them, Yellowstone, I couldn't take Casey. And at that point, I had rescued another dog. Uh, So I had two dogs at that point, and I had to leave them in the RV, which was really a bummer. And I write about, I was um, going around Yellowstone, and I, I saw some bears, and I was so sad. I was like, because they had been... Casey, at least, had been with me the whole trip, and it almost felt like it wasn't happening if he wasn't there with me witnessing it. So, Benoit, you're in Yellowstone, and you're, you want to run out and see some of the attractions, but you can't take your dog. you got to leave him in the car. What are the safety precautions? Because we know the dangers of leaving a dog in a car on a hot day. Yeah, so, I mean, I was, you know, very much aware of that. For that, it was, you know, park in the shade, lots of water. I knew that they were okay. Uh, you know, it certainly felt odd to leave them, though, and and to not have them be a part of this experience. But obviously, I sort of, I took their safety very seriously. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I ate in a, a restaurant where they, um, many restaurants where they allow dogs. So I think that, you know, it's pretty easy. Uh, you know, I had an, an app on my phone that would, and there are n- numerous ones that will help you find dog parks as you're driving along. You can find the nearest dog park. So I used that. It was very easy for me to drive around this country. As I said, I, I think it's actually more interesting to be someone who doesn't like dogs or is afraid of dogs living in America today. Because I spoke to some of these folks who said, you know, I feel like I can't go anywhere. And there's almost sort of this paralyzing fear to go oh, outside really? and to go to to go yeah. to public places, right? Because dogs are, are really allowed almost everywhere now. And that's really changed over the last, um, you know, 10 or 20 years. Now, if Casey could talk, if, if I was talking to Casey rather than his human partner, what would Casey's favorite stops have been on this four-month trip you took around the United States in your RV? Oh, that's a great question. I think he loved the mountains of, of North Carolina. I think he loved the West Coast, California, Oregon, uh, the beaches there. So it would be the places to romp the wide open spaces that yeah, yeah, his best um, memories. Did you go yeah. hiking together? Did you have some good memorable hikes that really yeah, were successful? We did. You got back to the car and you thought, that was great. <laughs> Yes, we had we had hikes. Um, What's the you know, best uh, hike? One, one of our we went on a. It's not a really a hiking spot per se, but probably the most memorable one for me was in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, hmm. which is a beautiful a little town with obviously a great name. Hmm. Um, and the sun was setting, and it was just a very spiritual experience for me. I, I'm not sure if Casey was aware. <laughs> um, hey, you man, know, but it, it was actually it was actually unfortunate because right at that time I was um, I convinced myself that there were bed bugs in the RV because I was itching, uh-huh. and so I my time there was cut short uh, because of my own paranoia. A lot of travelers, at least humans, you know, they compare notes on hotels and B and Bs and so on. Uh, I would imagine you chose places to sleep that were dog-friendly. What Mm -hmm. what would one of Casey's favorite uh, accommodations have been and why? You you wrote uh, about the the dog bark park in in, uh, Cottonwood. Um, So, (laughs) you know, we mostly slept in RV parks in the RV, but we occasionally, I needed a break sometimes. um, And so I stayed in a couple hotels, in dog-friendly hotels, because I wanted to write about dog-friendly hotels. But then I couldn't do this trip without staying in the bed and breakfast shaped like a uh, beagle in Cottonwood, Idaho. And uh, you enter through the rear um, of the beagle. It's this great 
landmark there that dog lovers come through and stay there. So uh, a dog friendly animals. a dog friendly B and B like that is really designed to be enjoyable for the for the dog owner or the dog. Well, I mean, you know, I think most <laughs> most of this is designed mostly for the owner. I, I do remember, I think they had biscuits for the dog, and there was a lot of places to, they had a, a, a big fire hydrant and a, a gigantic oh, fire hydrant, exactly, in the, fire in the yard. Down the hall. Yeah, so, um, I mean, they did their best, and it was a pretty great place. Our guest, Benoit Denise Lewis, has written Travels with Casey to tell us what he learned about himself and America on a long road trip with his dog. It's now out in paperback. You'll find a link to videos from their trip in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com. You traveled all, I mean, you had a great itinerary just far and wide around the country. Can you make any sort of generalizations about regional differences on how people see their dogs, treat their dogs? Uh, you know, what's it like for a yeah, dog I mean, in, in sort rich of ge- and poor areas, in big yeah. cities, small towns, uh, east and west, midwest? It's, this is a hard one to do because you're speaking in generalizations and people will always say, oh, you're wrong about this. But mm-hmm. I think certainly um, there are differences. I mean, I, I spent time with a, probably the most memorable moments for me was spending time in East St. Louis, which is the, the poorest, most dangerous neighborhood in America, with Randy Grimm, who's a rescuer who devotes his life to rescuing dogs from this neighborhood. And there are stray dogs everywhere. And there are dogs of dog fighters, and there are people who dump their dogs there. There are feral dogs. And feral dogs are dogs, for your listeners, who don't, who haven't had any human interaction, just sort of always lived outside in packs. We've got feral dogs in in the United States. I mean, is we that do. common? We, we do. We have feral dogs. Um, packs in, of dogs, wild dogs like wolves yep. almost? Uh, yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not wolves. I did actually meet some wolves on my trip. We can yeah, talk about that but too. But, but they're um, wolf-like dogs. Yeah, yeah, and they live outside and in packs. And, you know, East St. Louis is this place where, you know, there'll be a building and then there'll be, you know, an empty building and then there'll be, you know, this field of grass where there's nothing or then there's sort of a little forest. Uh, it's called sort of an urban prairie. And um, so the dogs will live in, in those homes. They will live outside. And, you know, Randy Grimm was this amazing dog rescuer from Stray Rescue of St. Louis, you know, would talk about the fact that he came from a certain perspective. He's a a white middle-class guy and talks about coming from that perspective. And he has to always sort of check himself because he, what he might want for a dog or his sense of what it, where a dog should be with a human being is not always the same as a, as someone in East St. Louis who, you know, maybe loves their dog in the, in their own way, but the dog lives outside. Maybe the dog is chained up sometimes mm-hmm. or, or most of the time. And Randy, in his own way, wants to rescue all of these dogs, but he doesn't have the space to do that. Mm -hmm. He can't do that. He can only rescue the ones that are sort of being abused, totally neglected or injured. Mm -hmm. Um, So really, there's this difference. Now, if you go to the south, um, uh, there'll be a different perspective of the rural south. There'll be a different perspective. People, um, you know, don't spay and neuter as much down there. So you have a lot more stray animals. You have so many. In fact, you hardly actually have any very few stray dogs like in the northeast we really we ship all these dogs from the south who need homes up to mm. folks in the northeast mm. um so there's different perspectives that way too and i think there are certain states you know washington state oregon are certainly seen as two of the the most dog friendly mm. um states uh, That's in the good. country yeah yeah 
Well, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Benoit Denizé-Lewis. He's an assistant professor of writing, literature, and publishing at Emerson College, and he spent four months running around the United States in an RV with his golden lab, Casey, and written a book. The book is Travels with Casey, My Journey Through Our Dog-Crazy Country. Benoit, you wanted to bond, profoundly bond with your dog. I mean, did you? I mean, you're, you're, you're all alone with your dog, basically, in an in a RV for four months. Were you, was your yeah. relationship different after that trip? Yeah, it was. And I, um, you know, I, I've thought a lot about why it was. Um, I mean, we, we obviously got to spend a lot of great time together. And I, before I take the trip, I, I went to see this therapist in New York City who specializes in the human-animal bond. There are, there are now these things, uh, these kinds of therapists. And, um, you know, I was really talking to him about my fear that Casey didn't love me very much. And so we talked about it, and I sort of figured out what I was projecting onto Casey. And I won't go into it totally. You can read the book. It's sort of a funny story, I think. But I realized as I was driving around the country that I was putting a lot of sort of emotional expectations on Casey. And Casey's just a dog. And I sort of accepted Casey for the lovable sort of goofball, but slightly, um, you know, he can be a little bit distant at times too, oddly. And that that was sort of what I was picking up on um, and reacting to. So driving around a country and meeting all of these different, I mean, I literally must have met you know, hundreds of dogs and, and seeing all the different types of dogs and seeing that they all have different personalities really helped me just accept Casey. And I came upon a pack of stray dogs, a res dogs on a reservation in Arizona, decided after falling in love with one um, and making sure that she was in fact a stray. There's many, many stray dogs on reservations taking her along. And she was sort of the opposite of Casey. She was very, very affectionate and physical. So I think that I just sort of accepted that, that dogs were different. And now with Casey, you know, it's sad. He's, he's 12 now. Um, he was nine when I did the trip, nine turning 10. And, Mm. um, he's, uh, he's slowing down and, and he's, um, and I think we're going into this new phase of our relationship Mm. where he's a really, he's slowing down. I don't know how much, you know, he's still in good spirits, but we can't go on these long walks. I couldn't have done this trip with him. I mean, I could have, but it would have been much different. He can't go on long, long hikes anymore. And that's incredibly sad. Bill from West Lafayette in Indiana emailed us, and he wrote, We would take annual summer road trips to Oswego Lake in upstate New York with our Black Lab, Gracie. That was where my sister and family have a camp on the water, and Gracie loved swimming in the lake. During Gracie's final years, she could hardly walk and navigate the steep path to the lake. But once on the dock, she would still jump in with as much enthusiasm as a puppy. Last year at age 15 was Gracie's last and we didn't make it to the lake with her. We miss her terribly, but memories of Gracie and her love of the lake keep swimming on. Hmm. That's a beautiful thought for the, yeah, last, really, the golden years of a it beloved really dog. Is. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of you know I'm I'm coming into that with Casey, and it's it's really scary. And um, but the water, you know, for a lab and for a lot of the dogs, I mean, Casey comes alive when he's around water and, and, um, we'll go swimming. Swimming is actually really good for his hips. Mm -hmm. His hips aren't great, but swimming is is sort of the best exercise. Mm -hmm. So he, he acts like a puppy when he's around water. Um, Mm. you know, I just had that experience up in New Hampshire. Just uh, like Bill's experience in Indiana there. That is interesting. Well, Benoit, this has been particularly interesting for me. I've talked to people for 10 years on this show and we've never really talked about taking a dog on a road trip. And it sounds like you had a rich experience and then you've reported on it beautifully with your book, Travels with Casey. Thanks so much and best wishes. Thanks uh, for having me. And I recommend that anyone who can can go out and travel around with their dog. No bad dog will save 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at OPB Portland and WBOR Boston for studio help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and a chance to listen again each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.